I don't believe in psychiatry when it comes to education. I believe in responsibility and liberation. Welcome to Tete a Tete, the Rice Architecture podcast series. I'm your host, Rose Wilkowski, and this week we are excited to host a conversation between former Rice Architecture Dean Lars Larup and Aaron Betsky, current Dean of the School of Architecture at Taliesin. They spoke candidly about Lars's love of teaching, his experience at Rice Architecture, and how he plans to continue his passions in the next phase of his career. This conversation followed Lars's farewell lecture, Building the Unfinished, an intellectual autobiography of a life in design as well as a lunchtime response hosted by Aaron Betsky. Both are available on the Tete-a-Tete SoundCloud account if you are unable to attend those events. Without further ado, let's tune in. You referenced very briefly Houston yesterday in your lecture, and it didn't really come up other than in my little intro. So it'd be great to hear your, now that you are have left, uh, looking back, um, and I was reminded of that this morning when I woke up and looked out of my window and saw that, you know, that perfect uh, zoemic zo- <laughs> uh, landscape spread out in front of my window. And I was on the sixth floor right above the canopy. What is your current thought on, on Houston? Well, what happens when you, when you live in a place for too long is that you don't see it anymore mm. because you live it. And that be- means that you are, uh, like all of these very large complex cities, you know very little of it. I have seen, because of Fox and my travels, every Saturday for ye- for a, almost a year, I've seen a lot of Houston. I've come to realize that it is an extremely varied city. It just happened to be lateral rather than vertical or dense. But one thing that strikes me, uh, which is, I think, quite interesting, is that if you go to New Orleans, and you want to know, you want to try to read the city to find out where people live, you realize that wealthy people live higher up, and the further down you go, the poorer they are. How does that apply, that idea apply to Houston? Here, count the trees. Mm. Because all the wealthy neighborhood have beautiful trees, very, and when you drive out, suddenly they begin to disappear. They always disappear, of course, in the in the speed zone. But even here, in some of the speed zones, some of the of the shopping centers have trees in the parking. So you can read the city very easily in terms of its. Uh, I mean, it, it's a rough reading, obviously, uh, of, of of the population. And uh, I bet that. Those people who live with many trees, when they go down well, some of these streets without trees, they will close. They will lock the car. Then, you, then you can look at things like cancer rate. The cancer rate is astonishingly high around the the river, so to say. 
where all the refineries in. The last, we have now had several fires. We had a fire just a couple of weeks ago that made it impossible to breathe. So this shows that industry of that kind should, and since there is no zoning, that was never an issue. H had it been zoned in the crudest sense, you would have said, we, don't, we cannot put the city and the refineries in the same place. It is one of the biggest issues here because it's very productive of terrible pollution. The flooding issue has to do that it is a, uh, ultimately a city run by developers. Developers are ruthless for the very simple reason that they sell their buildings once they're finished. They have no responsibility for them afterwards, so they can build in floodplains that are obviously floodplains that we know now is we now know is floodplains, and they still build there. So there is a series of recurring blunders, partly because they have not come up with a control system that is both flexible and intelligent enough to deal with this particular organization. Because I, I, for one, do not want to destroy it from, from a developer city because I think that a lot of young developers are getting more sophisticated because we ultimately have to change the mentality of everyone and certainly those that produce the city. So Houston has, in, for me, still a potential, but it requires a much, much closer attention, more, much more sense of the, the problems that it has. And, you know, we have a center here on, here on campus that uh, is, has lots of money, but, you know. But just to follow up on that, when you described Houston um, in your article and in your books, um, there was still a clarity, there was a continuity of that canopy of trees that denoted wealthy people, which it does in other cities as well. You know, when you enter Beverly Hills, you can tell because it becomes green. And then there were these moments of concentrated wealth that were mainly um, for office and shopping, with a few luxury towers, but really not that many. Now, Houston has been hit by the same blight that's hit American cities everywhere, which is the scourge of the Type 3 construction. Those horrible stick-built, up to five stories over concrete right, blocks. Well, the, the, the white-color prisms. Yeah, and uh, luxury loggers has been yeah. another name for them. Um, horribly built, really ugly, completely out of scale, they're cropping up here everywhere like they do all over America. And they don't follow that neat distinction between stim and dross. Um, they are bringing the kind of mediocrity and the planner version of new urbanism along the light rail lines, et cetera, to Houston. So how does that change the analysis of Houston, if at all? It you know, it, it's interesting, there is, a, as a counterweight to that, there is a return to a new type of development that is occupying maybe two or three lots, not more. And if you, it's particularly happened around 59. 
I was just taking a walk yesterday where I stay, which is just off Richmond and Montrose, and it is full of, you know, a traditional kind of um, California setup with houses on the side with a common courtyard. Mm. Now they are three to four stories, fancy kind of um, three-story and basically row houses, but in packages, not occupying more, quite varied. And in, there is an incredible number of them. Hmm. And s as much as uh, the stick buildings have, have uh, developed here too, there is in them inside the loop, which is what I would call downtown, there's been a, an enormous growth of this particular dwelling, and lots of them are very good designed. Hmm. So that means that the schools, the two schools, Houston and Rice, have produced local architects that are doing quite well. And Stephen Fox, for example, if you ever come back, can, can show you this, mm -hmm. you know, that is fascinating, really, because many, many young architects have a chance to do really quite interesting buildings. They, you know, they're, they're relatively typical. There's nothing surprising about them, but at least they're decent design. Right, right, right. They all have stairs, which means that since many of the, the much of the population that's moving in from the big houses to want to be close to the city because it's now really valuable in many towns, it has great restaurants and so on, they, they, they had tend with stairs, so that usually they put in uh, elevators, maybe too late, like they've done in Germany, for example. So, uh, you know, it is actually changing, mm. and exactly, I really haven't p spent enough kind of global time what it, what it means, but what, what has happened, one thing that, that uh, is evident that these generators, like the medical center or the galleria are like huge generators that have an apron that stretches far out from the center that affects the real estate. So in those aprons is where this happens. Mm -hmm. And since you here have a vocabulary just like Starbucks finding where people are educated, at least they did in the past, to, to put their stores, these, these uh, aprons are directly related to the central generator. Right, the stim. So the, exactly. So, for example, the big stim here is the medical right. center and the university. So that has tremendous effect on, on the surrounding area, and it's stretching further and further out. So I think that that is really where the key to the city of, of that is driven by development. It's driven by land prices always, always land prices and of land availability. And since it's hard to assemble large pieces of land in, in these aprons, that's why the other building type is going. But the density, you know, you, you're beginning to have traffic problems inside the loop. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at, at, at uh, 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 the parking fees, the fees have increased. And that is a direct reflection on the increase of density. Right. But in the meantime, I drove through Third Ward yesterday, mm -hmm. and Third Ward is, if anything, in worse shape yeah. than it was 10 oh years yeah. ago. Because 
there's some sacred pieces here in town. Turnwood is very, very protected mm. by a fairly strong community, the community leadership, and it's not going to be as easily absorbed as many other parts. Mm. Mm. You know, if you have deed restrictions, deed restrictions last for 20 years. What happens is that in these deeds, the restricted area, not in the fancy one, but the, the ones that are more dicey, a new generation comes in that has a completely different agenda, doesn't care about, uh, can't even get involved because it means community meeting, it means that every building has to agree. If there's one that doesn't agree, the deed is gone. Right. So developers come in immediately, very much like Mrs. Demonil did. Mm. Clandestine company went around, bought up all the houses, painted them gray. Right. The same method is used by the developers. They go in, buy up, and offer people you know a little more than they, they are worth, and then they can agglomerate and densify. You have to kind of understand. And uh, in, in, in my in one of my books, I had one developer who was describing all the things that he had to pay attention to. NIMBYs was a great big chapter. And that's why they all look alike anyhow. It doesn't really matter if you have zoning or not. The only thing that here you can put a, a, a dancing place in a bar right next to a house, which I think is cool. Yeah. So one of the other questions that has come up here um, brings together a number of different trains of thought that you wound your way around in your talk and also this morning, which is that we tend to think of you as someone who's very, very concerned with urban, the urban scale and with urban issues like we've just been discussing. And yet in your private work, you have worked through a lot of those issues at not just a building scale, but a furniture scale, an interior scale, or a pieces of buildings. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between a chair that's not a chair, or a coffee table that's a surfing board, and the larger urban issues that it addresses? That's a tough one. You know, as I tried to say, after I had heard to your dazzling layout of what we do as architects in all our various ways, I realized that I am not particularly good at the big perspective. So what I do, I try to, to, to come to conclusions fast. And the thing that is uh, dominating both my work in architecture and my work in furniture is liberation. Hmm. To liberate the material, to liberate us from forced things that other people tell us to do. I hate to be told what to do. And that means that I have to develop a moral system that I believe in that navigates my life. I don't want to be told how to be moral. I want to develop them myself. In other words, liberation for me is very important. Mm -hmm. And to liberate uh, silly 
Dom's chairs from their sitters. It's a rather peculiar notion, I guess, but yes, I want everybody to write their own scenarios of their own lives, their own, you know, which is, of course, is sci-fi, sci you know. Let's face it, because it would probably be mayhem. I mean, maybe we will all, you know, vote for anarchy. It, that's not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of responsibility because I think that this taking respons responsibility is essential to get to the next step of starting to slow down the process of, of, of destruction. That it, we have to all hold it. We, all, we have to all have it inside ourselves. We cannot be told because we have seen too many examples of what happens to people that are being told what to do. Germany, in the war, in this country, with a whole flock of people that are actually voting against themselves because they are told to. That's just astonishing to me. And that is the indication of that you have not been told to take your own responsibility. When I see studios with faculty sitting down drawing, I cringe. I never drew for a student. In fact, I hated these personal things. Put up the work, work, and talk about it all. We all talk about the work. I don't believe in psychiatry when it comes to education. I believe in responsibility and liberation which means trouble for everyone, because there will be some wild ones. So, continuing on that thought, um, you've chosen, even though you claimed you were retiring with great fanfare, <laughs> of course it turns out you're not retiring, No, you're continuing to teach. So, you have chosen to teach just about your whole life, um, and you obviously have a passion for it. Why? keep teaching and how is teaching now different than it was when you started teaching at Rice and deaning at Rice? There is a slightly uh, dark side of my decision to continue teaching which is pecuniary. Mm. Uh, I have been on my own since my father threw me out at 17 and I have always managed to survive okay. I've been very lucky, but suddenly 1st of July, I do no longer get a paycheck. I've sat down with my retirement counselor and realized that if I want to live the life I live, which is buying books and going to the restaurants and travel, I'm on the thin side. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do I do? I teach, and since I love what I do, I don't consider it work. But there's another side too. Uh, I I don't like to be with myself by myself. Even as a writer, yes, you well know you're all by yourself. You don't want to be disturbed. I can't even have music on when I work. And that to me is a, um, in a sense, a sort of pathetic life. I don't want to have that. I want to be around. I like. I love young people. Uh, you know, so for me to be around students is fundamental. They are 
they are my lifeblood. Young, fa I love young faculty. Like we have great young faculty here. They're terrific people. A great, great to hang out with them. Great to see their struggles, their worries about tenure and so on. I mean, all of that is part of my. That's what I do, and I, I am now assuming a slightly fatherly role, which I have always liked. I like it even more now, so I can give some advice and I can be. Uh, if you got a cry in my lap, I don't mind. All that. So how is it different teaching now, other than being more fatherly? Oh, when I began, I was just another graduate student. Arrogant, full of myself, angry, curious. And I'm no longer that. I'm curious. That's all. But I'm not angry. I hope I'm not arrogant. And the students? The students have become less and less inspiring because they are, I mean, one thing they didn't, they don't speak because we have told them in every review since the very beginning, shut up, we are here, that's our job, we talk. And we have not found a way of having an interesting conversation. And we, we redesign students' projects too often. We don't let them fail, we don't let them live their projects. And they become like trained monkeys. I don't like that. I, for me, uh, you know, I like to tell people when they hung themselves, but I want to listen to what they're trying to do. Do I always do? And I don't always do that, but I try. I think that our our culture is still extremely paternalistic. The problem, if you are not that way with American students is that they I'm suddenly lost to them. And I don't like that either. I like I I think there is the an, a distance it has to be a distance between us, student and teacher. And when that is abused, which it easily is here because you know nobody dresses up to you know look at me I used to wear suits all the time. Uh, you know that's another aspect that I'm still a European. Uh, I believe that we should dress up when it's an occasion, and I don't pe like people having their feet on the table when I come in. I like to be treated with certain dignity, and I, I like to have, have them realize that I am an older man, I have a lot of experience, and a lot of opinions, and you, you better hop to it, kiddo. <laughs> and I, I don't like to take prisoners. It's just, uh, it's not fun not worth it, but um, education is fundamental to me, and I think we redo ourselves every year, and it's very hard to exactly pinpoint what has happened all these years, but I've certainly uh, become more aware of who I am and what I do, and I feel relatively comfortable about that, that, that but I'm always full of doubt. But in your talk yesterday, you made a short diatribe uh, against relying completely on computer-based drawing and modeling. And you sounded like Mohammed Palisma in your fetishism of the pencil and the shortness of the distance from the hand to the eye. Is there really something that fundamental, do you believe, about drawing with a pencil? Isn't, aren't all media capable of transforming into 
tools to an end? I think, you, you know, I'm entering into a field that I don't really have any expertise, which is, uh, you know, if it's not psychology, it's something, something there. And whether it's true what I'm saying is not. It's just, I guess I, I say that partly polemically, but also trying to tell students that it's wonderful to draw with your hands. Whether it's very clear that it's being rapidly replaced. But people like Eisenman doesn't draw very well, never did. He always had people, you know. And I don't even, I don't know if Rem draws very well. Probably not. So, uh, you know, it's, it's probably highly biased because, you know, uh, I have had so much pleasure drawing. But I also realized that I don't draw like I what I the way I used to do. I mean, I used to more paint in the eighties than I now I draw more. But it's just a tremendous pleasure, and obviously, lots of people are owing and awing over my drawings, and that's nice. Yeah. So you're now um, headed. Well, you're you're in Miami, Fort Lauderdale, teaching in Miami. Um, do you have a nascent theory about Miami or buildings in Miami, the way you have theories about buildings in Sweden and buildings in California and buildings in Houston? Well, it's beginning. Uh, the thing about Florida is a very complex uh, geological setup. It has a, a very strange kind of uh, geology that the water literally is going to come from the bottom, yeah. and and the lake in the middle is is completely destroyed by agriculture. Florida is is heavily polluted and overbuilt. It's like a stretched Manhattan because the 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 avenues are there. You can drive all the way from Key West all the way up up on one of them, you know, and. It has um, all kinds of interesting issues, but it's it's like something you learn when you live 25 years somewhere. It's much more complicated than you think. Mm. So I guess I'm a little more hesitant to come to rapid conclusions about what this is. But I certainly am in the process of thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I pay attention to it. I mean, there's some wonderful things. There is, you know, I I was um, I was in Madrid. So fantastic gallery by Juan Herrero, which was all graffiti artists. That I, which is a group of people that I've always been interested in because they really come out of illustration, and uh, I've always been envious of illustrator because you know, like Lebelus, yes, he and I were exactly the same age. But uh, he was he was unbelievable. Before the, the, the new era, so to say, he lived from, from doing illustrations. Anyhow, so there was a gallery with fantastic paintings, mostly Chinese. Now in, in Florida, next to the design center, is a new district. It's entirely based on graffiti. Funky buildings graffitied up with really high quality graffiti. Which is so there is a new graffiti urbanism. Mm. That which we, which used to be terrible is suddenly fantastic, and that that's why you can never predict the future. Who would think that that stuff would be like this suddenly? 
And, you know, I, I walk around my house, or my, my, my building, and there is a guy that's been working on a building uh, for, for any, in Fort Lauderdale. A degree in art from Kansas City or some Kansas, some uh, wonderful guy. He makes $40,000 painting that facade. He said, I make much more than doing this than, than anything else. It's hard work. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, to make these sort of illustrated buildings and a whole district that is full of the stuff is quite amazing because at the same time, it's very funky. So, any valedictory comments, advice, thoughts for the current Rice students as you leave them behind? Don't be so damn People. serious. <laughs> I mean, come on. You know what? Well, well any parting jokes for them then? Uh, <laughs> sure. Here's a family driving in. Alabama, and suddenly there is a three-legged chicken <laughs> running by at an in amazing speed, <laughs> and into a farmyard, and uh, uh, so the father, who is very interested in, in, in curious things, he drives in, let me maybe better check this out, the forensic expert, right, he knocks on the door, and the door of a farmer, John, comes up to him. I saw this incredible three-legged chicken running by. Do you know anything about this? Oh yeah, we grow them. So why? Well, in this family, we really like drumsticks. <laughs> oh really? So how they? How do they taste? Oh, never caught one. Lars <laughs> Lehrer, country too. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>